Stay hungry, stay foolish. For many of us, the thought of work brings to mind a daily 9 to 5 grind, reporting to disinterested supervisors and working for the weekend. You probably entered the office feeling disenchanted, counting down the minutes until 5 p.m. Whether this approach to work is due to feeling unrecognized for your work, being a cog in the corporate machine, or the influence of apathetic co-workers, there is something you likely forgot along the way. You are in the driver's seat of your career. Making the switch from a passive passenger to being the driver isn't easy. Whether you are a frontline employee or a manager, today's episode offers something for everyone trying to find meaning in their work. We welcome business consultant and author of Low Man on the Totem Pole, Stop Begging for a Promotion and Start Selling Your Genius, Heather MacArthur. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love the way you emphasize within the book, Heather, that there are many of us who sit back in the back seat complaining about how the car has been driven when all we need to do is jump into the front seat and take charge. Yeah, it's a common challenge that comes up as I'm career coaching. And I, you know, I myself have been challenged with it, especially early on, where we get really upset about what a company's doing or what our managers are or not doing. And oftentimes when people come to me for career coaching, I'll ask them, what do they actually want to do or what kind of impact they want to have? And they'll look at me blankly like, well, that's why I came to you. And I realized the main reason they're having issues is they, they really don't know what they want to do and they're waiting for someone else to figure it out. And inevitably, they're never happy with what other people are doing for them. We hear this a lot about people looking for purpose from their work. And you mentioned this, and I fully agree with you, that you first need to uncover your own purpose, or at least where you're slightly challenged, but really enjoying the work where you're in this idea of flow. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily easy or, and I don't think it's always a requirement for you to enjoy the journey because sometimes it takes a while for you to figure out what's that purpose. And the way I like to look at it is I'll ask people, you know, you're 105, it's your, your last day on earth. And I know that's a, you know, deep question, but what is it you want to say about your life? And then we explore that. And it's usually something intangible. It's not this promotion or title or amount of money. But then from there we go, you know, well, then what, what do you want work to do to support that, that you want to have at the end of your, you know, 105 years? And then, then we can get busy looking at maybe work is this very big, meaningful thing that ties very closely with your purpose. And maybe I always like to use my brother as an example. It's, it's the paycheck and source of vacation that supports this other whole meaning that he has to his life of experiencing the world. And his job is much more the stable day-to-day thing that just kind of enables it. He's still a great employee. He still does a great job, but his job isn't, you know, saving, he doesn't see it as I'm going to save the world and change the world's meaning. I see my job that way. It ties to my purpose that way. But both of us are good at our jobs and both of us are as fulfilled by our work because we get where it sits in kind of alignment with what it is we're up to in life. And it's that idea, Heather, where no matter what you do, there's going to be elements of that you don't like. So if you look at that from a macro view and you zoom out from your career, from looking at your day-to-day job, and you put that as a piece of the jigsaw in your overall life, 
it becomes a different perspective to view it through. You know, what's funny is when I hear myself or I hear other people with a long list of complaints about their job or their boss or their workplace, it's not that those complaints may or may not be legitimate. It's that the degree as to how much they're impacting you has a lot to do with whether or not you're t- you're connected with your purpose and you understand how you're using that particular job or experience to to get there and if you're not connected to it then there's this without realizing it we put so much weight that this has to be our end all be all it has to give us everything and even the smallest little challenge will irritate us because we don't really know what we're supposed to be getting out of it it's not easy. None of this is easy. And, and, you know, we're not judging. And I think that's important to say, because you don't do this in the book, you give solutions, you call out what the issues are, but then you call out as well, why we got to where we are. And you mentioned two of the biggest issues facing the workplace today. One that we've been told not to believe in our greatness. And two, that business structure relies on people managers who have no clue how to develop people. You've nailed it, the two biggest sources. There is something that people kind of get lost in, this idea of being humble means kind of seeing yourself as less than. And I I, I really disagree. The way I see it as is you're just kind of causing a disservice to yourself and others. If you don't get, you have a greatness in you, a very unique greatness in you. And it, there's something that you're probably tasked to deliver in your lifetime. And one of the common things I'll say to people is, you know, you have a unique fingerprint that doesn't make you better than anybody else, but you still have a unique fingerprint. And so why deny the fact that you have some unique talent and gift and way of seeing the world? That doesn't mean that you're better than other people. It just means that you've got something unique to contribute. And the other side of it, the management piece of it is management's just changed a lot. You know, the job used to be keep people in line, get them to do the same thing over and over again. And that's a very different set of skills. And companies used to know how to develop that kind of manager. But now the manager who's a partner, who's a communicator, collaborator, um, who knows how to help people learn and evolve, uh, most companies don't know how to develop for that. They, people are so caught up in the promotion that they don't really get what the role of a people manager is. And a lot of time, they want to buy the talent off the shelf and not necessarily grow the people that work for them. And that's why you get managers who don't want to see turnover for the good reasons. They don't want to promote people out of their department because they're scared they won't be able to build the next person to be able to do things. And that's a really exciting moment in time where we're at that crux, we're at that change of managing people to do things, to do linear tasks, to growing them and evolving them. I I think that's a really positive thing. I think it's insanely exciting. I think we're in this mode where people still think being put into a people manager position is a promotion and reward for good service. And instead of looking at it as a, a very different job, I wouldn't think if I was a really good, say, English teacher, that that means I'm somehow qualified to be a doctor. Those are very two very different jobs. And I, I wish people understood that if you were, say, a, an animator, and they said, well, you're an amazing animator, We're, we want you to be in charge of four other people. They're literally saying, we want you to do a different job than you've been doing your entire career. And so if they if people saw it that way, companies would train them differently. There's a lot of people who would opt out and not take the job as a people manager, and rightfully so. And but but they'd also treat it like this profession they need to learn and understand and and it's that skill of developing others but also knowing how to run a business. And I think that's important to call out because 
really good people managers, they're not necessarily great domain experts. So they may have got there from being excellent at a specific thing or a specific task or sales or whatever it might be. But then in a way, they have to let go of that because being a people manager in a large organization is a full-time job and therefore they need to be allowed to just do that. Yeah. And I, you know, that's, that's that I kind of stumbled onto it by accident when, um, one of my, I had, I'd been, been a manager before, but when I kind of, um, in my mid twenties, I was just coming out of the military and, you know, I, I ended up taking this job in a call center that I didn't know anything about the call center and the, the, I kind of had to sit and get trained by my staff, which you could, you know, can assume that they weren't thrilled to see their manager having to learn from them like that. But within three or four months, now all of a sudden I'm managing them. They're the experts at stuff. What what I realized I'm really good at is helping them understand the bigger picture, um, solving problems. But I was so much better at delegating to them than I'd ever been delegating in the past because I didn't know all the details they did, but I knew how to develop them. I knew how to understand what are they trying to grow into. Um, and, and that's where I started to learn. Like the, it's the most kind of dignified compliment is to delegate to someone to solve their problems that they have to face every day. And it, it's not me going, I don't want to do that. It's more of why would I treat my brain as better than yours? You know, let me see where you're coming from. We'll do this together. And I find a lot of managers either over control the situation because they think they're saving the day or they're trying to protect their reputation. And what they're actually doing is it's, it's almost insulting. It's like treating this other person like they can't possibly learn what they learned. And what most people managers need to take on is less of, do I know the, the, the task at hand to the granular, you know, hundred percent and move over to, can I handle the pressure and provide cloud cover to my staff to make mistakes, learn, learn from them and grow. Yeah, that's great. And then protect them from the board. So say, for example, you're in a company and the board is under pressure, the board puts pressure on leadership. So therefore, leaders are expected to be doers when doing is leading people. So they might get pressure from the board and be put under a Microsoft as, what do you do all day? You know, and then the other side, you may have some people within the organization go, Aiden doesn't really do anything. You know, and, and they're talking about output when the output is an extremely large output is managing people, evolving people, growing people, teaching people, leading them, enabling them. I agree to a certain extent, but the reality is if, if you're really empowering your staff to do what they do and you're busy really coaching and developing them and engaging with them and helping them look at the big picture, you're busy and people see you being busy and they feel the impact of that. Uh, it's not, I've had a manager who just kind of delegated things and you're like, what are you doing? And it feels like you're just taking the brunt of things and the manager's not involved. Um, but when you've got a manager and I've had it where, um, you know, and like I said, in the beginning, the staff feels like, you know, what is, what is Heather up to, or what is she actually doing if she's not going to do this? And what they, what they start to experience is how much time I, I engage in coaching and developing with them. And the executive team, I've had that where they've come down and said, you know, I've been on a write-up in the first few months of my job because my team kind of started to perform a little bit slower because I'm, I'm changing what they do and I'm getting them to learn to be more kind of autonomous with things. So it takes them longer to answer questions in the beginning. And then all of a sudden they're out like a cannon because what they figured out is 
how to solve 50 problems versus asking me for an answer for each one. So I, I, I knew how to handle that heat because I knew what development looked like. And unfortunately, a lot of leaders don't know what development actually looks like. And it's a little bit like watching a kid learn how to walk. And, you know, it's amazing to me that when a kid starts to learn to walk, everyone around them, they're, they're clapping, they're cheering, that little kid with their chubby little legs falling everywhere like a drunk. <laughs> and we're all excited. And we think just the fact that this kid is trying to take a step guarantees that someday they're going to walk and someday they're going to run. So we have no doubt that these efforts are for a positive return. But you flash forward to adults and we see an adult take a, a stumble or take, make a misstep. And we assume this is the sign of failure to come versus, well, they're making efforts in the right direction. So of course they're going to learn, they're going to evolve if they're given the safe space to do that. And that's where I think we miss because a lot of us don't understand what learning looks like. And learning in the practice stages is messy. And it's always a step back to step forward. And I think that's so true that, and it's the same with any innovation. It always looks like a step back. There's always a lull in production, but you get hyper production thereafter. But it kind of identifies something you talk about deeply in the book, which is mindset. And you tell us when you're working with your clients, you first identify which of three mindset buckets they sit in. It would be great to share those three buckets. This has a lot to do with you know risk-taking, as you talked about innovation, but the three buckets are are they in safety mode? Are they in looking good mode? Or are they strategic and helpful? And all of us swim in those three lanes at some point in time because fear is what takes us down to safety mode and optimism and hope and confidence take us to strategic and helpful. And on a biological level, if we're in safety mode, and I see this in the workplace, especially these days where there's a lot of reorgs, people are being laid off, um, on a more frequent basis because companies kind of downsize and upsize based on what's needed versus, you know, before it used to be, we only lay off if we're in danger of bankruptcy, but now, you know, there's mergers all the time. There's, there's a lot of things that may cause a company to lay off a large chunk of employees. And sometimes they hire some of them back, but that creates this kind of safety mode where people are obsessed and consumed with, is my job safe? So you get a lot of territory thinking, a lot of either lashing out and blaming or just shutting down and, and trying to hoard information. And, and even on a biological level, your brain goes into fight or flight mode. And what happens is you stop taking in oxygen. So you also stop kind of taking in new information. I like to kind of align that to someone who's drowning. And if, if someone's drowning, everything looks like a shark, even the people who are trying to help them. So it's a really kind of unproductive way to show up to work. But it's also something that, that, that the workplace tends to kind of encourage people to become the way, you know, if a manager's constantly writing on someone, then it starts to kind of feed into their fear factor. The looking good mode is kind of just the baby cousin of that. Like maybe I'm not worried about losing my job, but that means I am constantly trying to make sure I look good to the powers to be. And I'm helpful unless you start to threaten how good I look. And then all of a sudden I might distance myself from you. I might throw you under the bus. But the, both those two modes are very defensive. They're very closed off. They, they, you know, your body is not letting in new information from this, you know, just open vat. It's not really being creative. It's, it's all about the defense. When you have a high level of optimism, meaning you believe there's enough to go around, there's enough reward, there's enough promotion, there's enough opportunity um, that you believe that you do good work and it'll all, all kind of pan out. 
you're in the strategic and helpful mode, you're able to see the big picture. You're able to think about what you want from something, but you're also able to think about how that can benefit and elevate other people. You're also willing to stand up and kind of say the thing that might be hard for people to hear, but you know it's going to elevate everybody. So it's not always an easy place to come from. It can rock the boat, but you're, you're coming from this place of, of pure optimism. And, and that's, that's what I like to say is like you're, you're setting yourself up to be the thermostat versus the thermometer, meaning instead of taking the temperature of how others are behaving, you're setting the temperature of this is my best self. I'm going to show up as my best self regardless of, of what kind of heat's coming at me. When I'm trying to help people kind of move from safety to looking good to strategic and helpful, what I usually do is I try to gauge what horror story are they telling themselves. So there's usually some sort of, you know, the world's going to, I'm, I'm not going to have a job. Someone's going to think badly of me. And so what I do is I ask them if a year from now, if all this worked out in your favor, and I do this to myself too, when I start to kind of spiral, if all this worked out in your favor, how would you show up right now? And, um, you know, it's amazing how all of a sudden your brain starts to go, oh, well, here's the things I do. And, and that happened for me where I had someone who it felt like they were going to take credit for my work. And I had just started contracting and I started to spiral into safety mode. Like, oh, well, if I don't get this gig, if they take, take my content, then I won't work and then I won't make money. And, you know, I'm really spiraling and, and you know, and then the looking good of who do they think they are and how dare they. And so I stopped myself maybe not soon enough because there were some emails sent that I'm probably not proud of, <laughs> but I, I stopped myself and I said, okay, so if a year from now I told myself that I, I got all the work that I possibly could want and I got more money than I expected, how would I show up? And I realized, well, I wouldn't care. I would just, I'd ask them, what do they need? How do I help them? And you know what? I won't charge for this one. Like you clearly, you need the content really badly. I'm going to be making tons of money this year. So let me just help you. And I showed up very differently. We ended up working out a great solution. But what was great is I showed up as my best self instead of the kind of defensive, let me put you in your place or let me hoard my information. It did, it did work out for me. And in most situations, it works out in a better way than you expected. And even if it doesn't work out perfectly, maybe the other person doesn't meet you halfway. What I have found is you're practicing your greatness your pride is, is intact. The way you show up with other people is in your greatness and other people kind of respond to that versus you act small in this one situation. You assume that you'll be great in the next conversation you have. And that's rarely the case. It's like a snowball. Yeah. It's amazing how that comes back to you, isn't it? When you give like that. And sometimes, yes, sometimes it doesn't. And you just got to let those ones go. You have to let it go and you have to realize that you're still practicing your greatness. I even see this with people who, let's say they're in a job that's not their chosen work. I was coaching with somebody who was working and doing kind of administrative assistant work and it wasn't what she wanted to do. Ultimately, she was going to school to be an EMT and she was going to, in six months, test out and be able to work as a paramedic. And so as an administrative assistant, she didn't see that as an important job. She felt like her manager was kind of rude to her. So she was showing up just half-assed the entire time. And so I told her, I said, what's hard is that you're practicing this very low level of your greatness. And you're going to go get your test and go be a paramedic. And you're going to assume that your brain's just going to kick in and fire on all cylinders. But it's been practicing low-grade work effort. 
Like instead, if you practice being awesome at everything that you're doing, it's like training for the Olympics. It's like you use this time to get your brain used to this idea that you do everything at the highest possible level you can. So that when you move into being a paramedic, your brain is geared for excellence and paying attention and detail and the and vigilance. And I'm like, if you just kind of come in and phone it in for the next six months, your brain, it's not going to just kick into gear as if, oh, we're at a different place. Let me behave completely differently. It's just like if I just sat on the couch for five months and think, well, oh, the marathon's going to start on month six, all of a sudden I'm going to be a great runner. That's not how it works. You introduce your great tool in the book, which is your POP, your pyramid of purpose. It'd be great to share that, Heather. I'll draw this out for people. And I, the way I describe it is what's your pop? And that goes into a little bit of that question that I asked earlier. If you were 105, what would you want to say about your life? And the way that I show it visually is on any pyramid, the top of the pyramid is the only stone that's just very unique and everything else is usually the shape of a brick. And so that, that your why, what is it that you want to do that's intangible is that top of the pyramid. And so um, you know, for mine, the example is, you know, I want to help people figure out who they are and, and get out there and be that, you know, contribute in that way. That's very intangible. Only I'll know if I've done that. There's no real hard data that says whether I've done that enough and on big enough scale. Um, but the bricks underneath that, um, they, they're the ones that support it. And I see the bricks as kind of three levels. The first level is, on the bottom of the pyramid is that foundational base. And the the bricks that are there, you decide. But for me, my example is, you know, my friends and my family are on that bottom row, that foundational row. I It's not so much that I'm actively kind of putting into those bricks. It's more that they tend to kind of give to me. They get less of my time and energy uh, in reality. Um, but, but, they, they really kind of, without them, I, I wouldn't be doing what I do. I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Um, so I really value them and the time that they get with me is precious, but they don't get as much of my time. I don't take as many risks with my friends and family either. I play it very safe. In the middle row are, is kind of the areas that help start to kind of develop you or, or support you. And so I, I see myself as travel and education kind of fall in there. Um, rest and relaxation, fitness, all those things are kind of regimens or th- tools that help me kind of stay in the mix. And then at the top row for me is my money brick and my work brick. And that really ties very closely into how I help others. The more money I make through working for companies, the more I can give free services to people that can't afford career coaching. I can volunteer quite a bit or do pro bono work quite a bit. My work is the way that I feed my why. I mentioned my brother earlier, his top of the pyramid, his pop is he wants to experience everything he can in the world. That's very intangible. He's the only one that's going to know if he's experienced enough in the world. His foundational uh, brick on the very bottom is his job. So it pays the money, it provides a lot of vacation time, and it you know challenges him enough to keep him interested during the times that he's not going out and exploring the world. His middle row is his family and friends. He does a lot with them. They go on a lot of his trips with him. But his top row is money and vacation time and travel. And so it's it's all lined up differently. The beauty of this is no matter where you put the bricks, they're all a priority for you. They all matter to you. But the top layer is going to get more of your time, more of your risk taking. The bottom layer you're going to treasure as like 
the air, the thing that really kind of feeds what you do for a living. So my brother is an amazing, he works in the patent office. He's amazing at what he does, but he wouldn't say that it's his mission in life. I, I love what I do and I see it absolutely tied to my mission in life, but I love my family and friends too. It's just, they, they, they serve a different purpose in my life. And honestly, I've had friends and family members who didn't want to participate that way, wanted to be more of a priority. And it, you know, I had to kind of part with them. My brother had jobs that were more time consuming and he had to part with them because to him, working 16 hour days didn't align with his purpose of experiencing the world. Me working 16 hour days absolutely aligns. That means I'm doing what it is that I meant to do in my mind. So it, our work-life balance is actually fine. It's just my work will maybe take up more time than my brother's work might. I love the way you frame some of the bricks as well, Heather. You talk about a helper. So you talk about cheerleaders and mentors, but you equally talk about challengers because challengers, and I see this as well, where, and I didn't always see it this way, those people in work who make your life difficult or always are saying no or just getting in the way, and particularly in innovation roles, can be seen as real challengers for you and real obstacles to overcome and reframing them as lessons, as teaching lessons. Because oftentimes if we do that, we can find ways to articulate what we want to do better. So we might find ways to align innovation or change management within a company in a way that everybody can understand. I finally had this realization, mainly because I kept running into people who seemed to be raised by the same people or something, because they all irritated me the same way. (laughs) And um, it dawned on me, it's really not the person that's challenging me it's it's their behavior pattern. So it might be, you know, people saying no to me and my ideas. And what I, you know, it's kind of like a video game is that you don't get to really go to the next level till you figure out how to work through this particular challenge. And so in life, what I see is if I don't know how to work through this particular behavior pattern from someone, then everywhere I go, every job that I go to, someone else will show up that triggers me this way. So I started to see these people as like, oh, you're the gift. You're the person coming and bringing me just the pattern that I need to learn how to work through so that I can level up. And and I find that if you embrace that, the faster you learn, the more you level up at a much quicker pace. And and if you don't, what I find is that the stakes start to increase. So let's, you know, I had a person who called me and she had an issue with an employee who would cut her off and and push back in front of other people. And it really drove her nuts. She felt disrespected. So we worked through, here's how to have the conversation, give the feedback. And um, when we stopped the coaching session, I just had this sense of she's not going to do the dialogue. She's going to avoid it. I follow up with her and this employee had put in her notice and she's like, oh, I don't have to worry about it. She quit. And I said, okay, well, is she gone yet? Because if she's not, go have a conversation. It's low risk. She's like, no, no, no. I just don't, I don't even want to bother. So then two months later, she calls me. She's describing this coworker cutting her off, telling her no. I'm like, okay, well, now it's a coworker versus an employee, but it's the same issue. Go have the conversation. She never had the conversation. By the third time, I get the information. She'd already quit the job and she had lost it on the new VP that came in and cut her off and told her no. And she snapped. And I'm like, what I saw is just like, it escalates in the level of kind of risk in the situation. But if she had practiced with the employee, she would have been better by the time she talked to the the peer and she would have been a black belt by the time the executive showed up. 
but she hadn't done the practice. So the video game, basically, you're out of quarters. You're going to have to start over. Let's share the uh, the great story you share from the book of the cranky IT guy. I thought this was a great way of understanding (laughs) empathy, you know, understanding how somebody else sees the world totally different from you. And that's okay, but you need to almost step into their world to unlock people. He's one of my favorite examples of really getting to a place of using the pyramid of purpose that I got called by his manager. I worked at a cruise company. He was the night shift for IT. So basically the ships would, their IT crew would call in and try to troubleshoot if there's a problem. Now, if he can't solve it, then he's got to call his manager who's, you know, sleeping at home at this time to come in and fix it. So his manager ends up reaching out to me and saying, you know, he needs help with customer service. And I just always kind of question people need help with customer service because I find people are amazing when they love what they do and they love the people that they're working with. They give good customer service just from that. But I'm like, okay. So he comes in off night shift. It's, you know, 6.30 in the morning. I'm there earlier than I want to be. And he clearly wants to go home. And um, I'm going through this pyramid of purpose. And he stops me and he says, you know, look, lady, I don't, I don't watch Oprah. I don't read her book of the month. I don't care about any of this. And I told him, I was like, that's, uh, that's fine, but you're stuck with me. So you might as well play along. What's your, what's your purpose? What do you want to experience? And he says, well, I just want my manager off my back. And I'm like, I don't buy that's what you care about. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I just want them off my back. And I'm like, if you did, you would have behaved differently. Then you'd get them off your back. You're behaving in a way with that they're constantly on it. Then he said, well, I just want a paycheck and I want to go home. I said, when's the last time you got a raise? And he's like, well, I can't get a raise. I've been on a write-up. I'm like, you suck at collecting a paycheck. Like this is, you're not bleeding it for all it's worth and you're too smart. I don't buy that's your purpose. So finally he comes clean. He says, look, I took the night shift so I could go home to my son. That's all I care about. And I want to spend time with him. And I said, okay, I, I believe you. I'm sure you're doing everything you can to be a good dad. But here's the thing, you're fighting with people all night long on your shift. You're you're being held an hour extra where you should be with your son. You're hanging out with me because you're getting in trouble. So what you're actually doing is you're making your purpose to put others in their place versus to go home and and enjoy your time with your son because the night shift is already kind of sucking your energy. Why are you allowing these people to suck more energy out of you? So we went through this whole conversation. He leaves I check with the manager a week later. She's like, I haven't had a complaint. And so I end up running into him one morning and I asked him what he, you know, how's it going? And he says, oh, I did your stupid Oprah thing. And, and I said, okay, what, what did you do? And he says, I took a picture of my, my son and I put it on the phone. And now when any one of those jack wagons calls me, I think, what do I need to do <laughs> so I can go home and enjoy my son? And I, you know, of course I was like, okay, we're in a good space. You're, you're showing up better. Let's work on some other skills because, you know, if you still think they're jack wagons, you're probably going to snap at some point. But what happened there is he realized his work brick, his manager was saying his work brick had to be at the very top. And it just wasn't, it wasn't about the job. The job was something that enabled him to be home with his family. His family to be a good dad was the top of his pyramid. And so when I said, you get to have your work brick at the bottom. But make the work brick at the bottom do what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be the foundation and you're making a shaky foundation. And so when he he kind of aligned himself around what work was supposed to be, he started to show up differently because he, you know, he got more tuned into my real purpose is this kind of being home with my son. And I think to your point, that point of empathy 
uh, part of the reason that I could empathize with where he's coming from was honestly because I'm not judging where he's coming from. I think that's the biggest thing that gets in the way of empathy is this idea that we're judging people's right to think or feel or value something. And if we just open ourselves up to, to hear where they're coming from and not judge it, you'll, you'll get to experience where this other person is and you'll get to align with their feelings and emotions. And that's that universal connection. And you share some new rules. You introduce some new rules that we need to pay attention to in the workplace. It'd be great if we shared some of those, Heather. Yeah, you know, I'd say the number one is um, you've got to think like a business owner uh, and not like a student or an employee. We've been really primed, especially through school, that if I do really good, I get straight A's in 11th grade, I'm guaranteed to go to 12th grade. So we're in this thought process of if I do well, I have I'm guaranteed to move up and that's my, I'm entitled to that. And that somehow means I'm successful as a business owner. You're not thinking about, do I move up? You're the owner. It's more of, am I growing my business? Am I, uh, am I, am I creating trust and relationships with my customers? And so if you think, if you remember that really all of us are business owners, even if you decide to work for a larger company, you just negotiated away some of the risk. So you're sitting in this company, but you're still a business owner. There's still a service that you're in charge of. And yeah, you file your taxes differently, or maybe you, um, you, you, you get the work funneled to you in a different way, but you're still in charge of this business. So if I'm an admin assistant, guess what? I'm in charge of a business that offers office support. Um, if I'm a, if I'm a, the head of a legal department, well, I'm basically running this whole business unit for a larger company. I have to think about what services am I providing? How's my customer feel? And if that's the case, your manager is actually your number one customer. And it's a very different relationship. I think it's a much more dignified way of engaging with people. Um, but as a student or an employee, I'm waiting for others to tell me what to do. As a business owner, especially in this kind of job climate, you're creating demand for your services. You're creating demand for what you bring to the table. You're selling people on investing and paying you to do these new things that you want to do at the company versus as an employee, I want my manager to tell me how they're going to promote me or develop me. It's a lot, it's, it's less reactive and more proactive. That's the number one new rule I, I, I would love for everyone to get their arms wrapped around. And I love this one that the way you phrase this, we need to weave webs rather than climb ladders. Oh yeah. I mean, I've sat in so many hiring meetings where I'm part of a panel that's deciding where someone's going to go. Or I've sat and listened to a lot of people discuss their careers. It used to be the faster you shoot up the ladder, the better you look. And the reality is now because of rapid change, because so many organizations have this matrix connection, they're looking for people that understand businesses on a very three-dimensional base. So instead of this ladder, I say it's a web, which means when you look at what your next career move is, don't think a lateral move to the side or maybe even a step back or a diagonal move over into another industry or another profession is necessarily a bad thing. It's not slowing your progression down. You're collecting experiences. That makes you much more flexible and agile. It makes you have a better and deeper understanding of how a business runs. And it also sets you up to be able to see the bigger picture in a way that you couldn't if you stayed in the same area. So, you know, even positions like a CFO these days, they're looking for someone who not just, you know, did a straight line from an accountant all the way to CFO, 
but somebody who was a manager or a leader of different departments or functions that shows you really understand the breadth of a business. So the more kind of diverse experiences you're having, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. But today, that's what makes you really marketable. Another one closely aligned to that is the idea of, and the dreaded idea of, for so many people, of networking. And you say, rather than go out there and network, go out there and build relationships. Yeah, I mean, I oh, I hate networking. Um, <laughs> and I know some people really love it and they're great at it. Bless their hearts. I'm so glad they are. But I always felt, I, I, you know, I say it in the book, like I felt like a prostitute. Like right out of the military, they go, you need to go to these networking events. And I just, every time I went to some of these, I just felt dirty. Like I'm just begging for work from people. And so, but years later, someone uh, in one of the companies I worked with stopped me and was like, God, you're such a good networker. How do you do it? And I just kind of cringed like, ooh, like that just feels so gross to me. What do you mean? And they're like, oh, so many people know about you. They like working with you. And what I realized is, I'm not a networker. I'm, I'm a relationship builder. And what that means is I lead with how can I f- provide a service to someone? How can I help them? And if I'm focused on that, then in the midst of that, I'm building relationships. Sometimes the way that I, I, I help someone is just be present and listening to them. There's times where I've, I've just been sitting in a restaurant or on a plane or somewhere else and I, I smile and I'm friendly and they, you know, chat with me and all of a sudden, they're, they want to help me because I've just been enjoyable to talk to or I was helpful around something. And I don't do that because I'm waiting for to get something in return. I'm just, I'm being myself. I'm being present with people. And I've just, I've been so lucky that I've had a lot of stuff returned to me because of that, that kindness, that generosity. I've seen it in tenfold come my way. And I'm not thinking of it with every person I talk to, am I going to get something out of this? But that felt to me much more genuine, much more authentic. And even when there's times where I'm not sure I have anything to provide them, is just being human with them in that moment. Um, it just goes a long way. And so it just stopped being about, I'm only going to reach out to people when I absolutely need a job. And that's what starts to kind of bring out that desperation, and that kind of begging. I still think it's great that if, you, if you're looking for a job, I've had people reach out to me before, and I've noticed a difference between the person that says, oh, I want to talk to you about, you know, how you built your career and how that might be able to help me. Like I'll still talk to that person, but it feels very take versus give and take versus the person that even just says, I'm honestly not sure how I might be able to help you, but I'd really appreciate a conversation. Let me know what would be convenient for you. They're advertising that they're looking for a give and take situation. They may just not know what that looks like yet. And I think even that earnestness, that that speaks volumes to people. Even the idea of just giving that and forgetting about it, so paying it forward is absolutely so rewarding. Yeah, it's also an assumption of just, there's just enough to go around that there's abundance places. And, and yeah. I personally believe that where I feel like I might give to five people who may never really be able to give me anything in return, but I feel like I've, I'm, I'm trusting that when I do that, then from another angle, that I there's been plenty of times that I've been, you know, maybe not booking work and I'm in a situation where I'm not receiving, you know, phone calls or whatever and I'm stressed. But I, you know, I just get busy volunteering places because I'm in this midst where I'm practicing my greatness. I'm doing what my gift is. I'm, but I'm doing it with people who can't pay me per se, but I'm, I'm in that mix and that flow of doing what I love, what I'm meant to do. Inevitably, what happens is the the gigs, the paying gigs come in and it's just, it's, I do, I believe that that energy flow, if I just stay at home and I'm stagnant, 
and I'm not doing anything and I'm not helping anyone, then I just, you, I can just feel it. Like there's just a, a, like I'm cut off from what's supposed to be coming in towards me. Yeah. And I've seen that myself where, you know, people go, why do you do that? You know, how are you going to get paid? And you're kind of going, well, I'm just going to do it rather than not do it and then see what happens. Because if it feels good to meet people or to, you know, do this show or to write or whatever, that feels good. And it, it will inevitably lead to something different. I've had people say the same thing to me. It's like, what if you don't get paid? And like, I, I'm not that person. I've even had said like, oh, well, you know, sometimes even as a woman, like, are you going to negotiate? Are you going to get the money? And I'm like, I, I'm not that person. I have no problem negotiating for, for what my worth is and, and what, and what my services worth is. But I always see it as business is always about trade. And that trade is not always just monetary. And so I look at it as maybe I'm volunteering and I'm helping someone and they're honing my skills because I'm, I'm learning how to help them through a particular challenge. And maybe they didn't pay me for that particular service, but they set me up so that the next time maybe a company comes through and says, Hey, we've got five people who have this challenge. Well, guess what? I got some free training by this person who I just volunteered with. And so I've never experienced something that wasn't a fair trade. I don't, I don't do business where it's not a good trade. I just don't think money is the only thing you trade on. Yeah, but I agree. You mentioned energy there and money is energy. And if it sits in a bank account all the time, it's going to gather minute element of interest. But if you move it around and invest it and shift it around, you may lose a little bit, but you may win big as well. And I see networking or relationship building or getting out there and doing something, the same thing. It's energy that's not stagnant. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, if even if you say, you know, I'd even say like, if you've got the money in the bank, but there's a purpose behind it and it's, it's meant to do something versus what I call like hoarding, whether it's the hoarding of money or the hoarding of information or the hoarding of resources, that's a fear-based strategy versus, oh, I'm going to collect this because, you know, once I collect a certain amount, here's how it's going to be used or, or where it's going to go and what it's going to feed. That to me is you keeping the energy flow going. And so I'm collecting information sometimes. And then all of a sudden I see an opportunity to let it flow and go to the people that were meant to receive that information. To that point, I also think it's, it's your responsibility to look for where the flow should stop going. So I've had times where I'm at companies and I'm like, I'm trying to share this information. It keeps getting kicked back. And at some point I have to recognize they're not really open for what I'm bringing to the table or they're not ready for it. So let me trust that there's enough people out there. Let me take this talent or skill set or information that I have and make sure it gets to the people who are ready and in need of it. And it might be that I come back to that same company five years later and now they're ready for me. Or it might be that they were just never the people who needed what I brought to the table. And I, I have to be okay with that. Another thing you talk about is this idea of codependency versus interdependency. And I love what you say that we should not treat people as drivers of our careers just because they hold rank over us, but see them as business partners because they are in fact our customers and they're not people we need to fear or worship. I've always wanted to kind of do some sort of study, I think because I definitely saw flaws in the adults around me as a kid. So I didn't grow up thinking that age necessarily made someone smarter than me or wiser that that sometimes somebody who's much younger than me or maybe has a I had a I had one of my admins um in my in one of my previous roles who she was just she was a good 15 years younger than me 
but she, there was so much she taught me by the, when I was working with her. You know, she didn't have a title that was higher than me. She didn't have the age, but I could recognize like she had an insight and a way of looking at the world that I didn't have. And I learned a lot and I would consider her a mentor in the time that I worked with her. Um, but also I've seen people where go, oh, well, they're the EVP. They must know. And they don't test that. They don't question that. When you think like a business owner, you view everybody like a customer. You really gauge the customer's understanding of what's going on and where you come in, where they don't have all the information. Um, I think in business, it's dangerous that we get kind of caught into this paternal dynamic with our managers and we, we just abdicate our own thought process, our own judgment, uh, because this person happens to have a higher title. And it, to me, I see it as if, if a doctor saw the patient as all powerful, or if the patient sees the doctor as all powerful, then the wrong conversations show up. The patient doesn't push back when they say, you know, like, no, I'm feeling this in my body because they go, well, the doctor should know better. Um, and then the doctor wouldn't push back and say, you don't need that prescription if they're like, well, well, you know, the patient's paying me. So like there can't be rank for that relationship dynamic to be the best. And I think that's the same in any kind of business that you do, that, that, that this idea that rank equals someone smarter or better, rank just equals what they're responsible for and what position they're playing on the team. I wait to meet the person and see what they're skilled at and knowledgeable about for me to gauge what I'd listen to in terms of advice or viewpoint and what I might question and what I might need to make sure that I help them out with. And and and, the, and, it, and that to me is that side-by-side partnership. And that's what I love about taking on that business owner mindset. It sets you up to do that. Yeah, and I love what you say as well, where managers should also treat their direct reportees as customers because oftentimes we treat our customers better than we treat our family or our, our spouses or our children in some cases that we treat these entire strangers better than we treat people who are closest to us. Oh, 100%. We bring out our best selves when it comes to like customers. And we, I think what I love about the, the, you know, framing it as customers is we don't have, there's no books that are written about how to be a good customer. And <laughs> maybe that's the next book I should write. But nobody, you know, nobody studies that. Nobody has this preconceived notion about what a customer is supposed to behave like. But we have a lot of preconceived notions about what an employee should be, what a manager should be, what a coworker should be. And so that preconceived notion sets us up to judge people instead of just connect with the person, see them for who they are, gauge what is really their strength and what their their opportunities are and where we can complement them as individuals. And so if managers saw their employees as customers, and, and once again, there's this trade going on, it's what is, what is this person looking to get out of the trade of the work we're doing together? And it may be very different than another person who happens to report to me. Maybe someone here is, they're just looking to trade to, to be able to be free, to make good decisions, be creative and get their job done. Another person is looking to trade for development. Another person is looking to trade for exposure. But we're all in business together. Let's, let's discuss what that trade could look like and make sure that we're aligned. And Heather, last thing is, so you're a person who's realized that you must get into the driver's seat of your own career, right? And what do you start with? You mentioned journaling, for example. Is that the place to start? Yeah, I think the minute you start to realize you're ready for a, a, a new chapter, but you're not quite sure what that needs to look like, I call that exploratory mode. And I tell people to date life. And what I mean by that is just start to pay attention to what causes emotional reactions to you, whether 
you journal it, whether you keep it on your phone and you just notate when you're noticing things. And that could be anything from what you love to what starts to irritate you. Um, for me, uh, my last job that I was at before I quit and went into consulting, I, I was noticing that every afternoon I'd, I'd pull into the office and I'd see people jogging in the middle of the day. And I just would get irritated. Like, who are these trust fund babies? Just <laughs> They just jog in the middle of the day with no schedule and they're all in great shape. And I was, you know, being really kind of irritated by it. And I would think about it while I'm in the elevator. So I'm like, I should pay attention to this. Now, as I started to journal about it and kind of pay attention to my reactions of what else am I noticing that I either am really fired up about or really like, what started to collect for me was this idea of pure freedom to go wherever you want. And that ended up, you know, connecting to me wanting to go back and be a consultant and be able to work for whatever companies I wanted to work for. And so that ended up leading to my next career move. But it, you know, it took some time and discovery and whatnot, but I see it as the first stage is exploratory and you have to kind of be open to not knowing. On one hand, that's amazing. It's a nice adventure. On the other hand, it's frustrating because we like to be certain. The next phase is research. Like, okay, now that you have a sense of what you want to do, now you've got to talk to people and look around and find out how do you go about doing that. And the last phase is action. And that's kind of the highest risk phase of things. Now you know for sure what you want to do. You have a sense of how to do it. But now you got to jump off that cliff and take a chance. And all those three stages are, are beautiful chapters in that, in that journey. And I, I just would tell people to be patient with themselves and that there's no wrong place to be. Just allow yourself to be there and move from one stage to the next. Well, you do a fantastic job in the book of bringing people through the entire journey down to diagnosing through to solutions. And you mentioned there about not leaving the money in the bank or not leaving the energy stagnant. And you certainly haven't done that with this book. You've given your information out there and I'm sure it's going to come back tenfold. Where can people find you, Heather? My website is lowmanonthetotempole.com. Author of Low Man on the Totem Pole, Stop Begging for Promotion, Start Selling Your Genius, Heather MacArthur. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.